Welcome to tonight's show, which we are starting with by discussing an egotistical megalomaniac arsehole and ending with by talking about another narcissistic megalomaniac arsehole. We're beginning with Donald Trump, who has been indicted, and then ending with Elon Musk, who congratulations, Elon, um, after purchasing Twitter for £44 billion. He is now Twitter's most followed user. So I'm assuming this means it was all worth it. First story. When Fox News announced Donald Trump had been indicted, there were audible gasps in the studio. Here, uh, we have just gotten word former President Donald Trump has been indicted by a grand jury in New York. Trump was under investigation by the DA's office for his alleged hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 campaign. So Fox News were shocked. Trump, though, was outraged. He posted this on his own version of Twitter. It's called Truth Social. These thugs and radical left monsters have just indicted, although he wrote indicated, indicted the 45th president of the United States of America and the leading Republican candidate by far for the 2024 nomination for president. This is an attack on our country, the likes of which has never been seen before. It is likewise a continuing attack on our once free and fair elections. The USA is now a third world nation, a nation in serious decline. So sad. So what's this all about? And what's the crime which Trump is alleged to be guilty of? Well, it relates to hush money paid in 2016 by the Trump campaign to the adult entertainer Stormy Daniels. In October 2016, Trump's then lawyer Michael Cohen transferred Daniels $130,000. It was part of a deal to buy her silence about an alleged sexual encounter between her and Trump in 2006. The upfront cash was paid personally by Michael Cohen. And then when he was president, Trump paid Cohen back with monthly $35,000 checks from his personal account. Trump originally claimed these monthly payments were a retainer for Cohen's legal advice. But Cohen, who has now turned against Trump, has testified to a Manhattan jury that that was not the case, that this was hush money and there was false recording of that hush money. And Trump's indictment remains sealed, so we don't know the precise crime he is alleged to have committed, but it essentially involves false accounting to further a political campaign. Um, Aaron, Trump is the first ex-president to be criminally indicted. And I mean, it, it seems to me like I'm sure this guy's committed a bunch of crimes. I mean, obviously, I, I don't have proof, but that's the impression I get. But when you look at former presidents and the kind of things they've done, I mean, at least this hush money to Stormy Daniels, it doesn't seem, you know, uniquely bad or uniquely criminal when you compare to what other, other previous presidents have done. Yeah, I mean, the big story here is obviously not the crime that he's perpetrated, which is, is, is relatively minor. I don't mean to mischaracterize it or, you know, play it down, but it is obviously relatively minor, but the implications are huge and that's why everybody's talking about it. You know, we were, we were having a to and throw before this show earlier on today, Mark, and I said, isn't it interesting? Uh, how this is being covered by the UK media in comparison to, you know, various political stories here involving our own leaders, which, you know, don't get that, the same kind of attention. Uh, and that's not because of the nature of what he's done, but because of the implications. Obviously, like you said, he's the leading candidate uh, to lead the Republicans. Increasingly, I think it would be probable that he would win or the Republican candidate would win. Probable. I don't say that lightly. U.S. economy now looking at 1% growth this year, obviously inflation coming down, but still economically, it's, it's not in a great situation. And as we said before, I think Trump was a nail on for a second term had COVID not happened. So the implications here are extraordinary. They're, they're really, really big uh, in terms of what it means to the wider U.S. Uh, political context and who could be the president after 2024. But it's a bit like Al Capone with uh, 
I thought it was tax evasion. Apparently, somebody said to me it was a parking ticket. I, I, I still think it was tax evasion, but the, the analogy still holds a very major figure with huge ramifications. But what they've got him on the hook for, quite small. Trump clearly sees this all as an opportunity to drum up support for his presidential election bid, as Aaron was just mentioning there. Um, on his Truth Social account, so again, this is the version of Twitter which Trump launched himself. Um, so every time he tweets, he's, he's making the news and also advertising his own company. Um, on that account, he's been tweeting clips from Fox News all day. Um, this is just a selection. This is an injustice. It is obviously the criminalization of political differences, Pete. Sean, if this is not a closed ranks moment, then I, I don't know what is. You're exactly right, Tommy. This is a horrible night for our republic, but politically a great night for Donald Trump. In that it just is. Because, no, no, because they're gonna, you remember the mugshots of Elvis and Frank Sinatra and Johnny Cash and Jimi Hendrix and Mick Jagger? turned them into even bigger icons than they were. If there's a mugshot of Donald Trump, it'll be in dorm rooms and on T-shirts, making him a hero or an anti- No, Will! And rightfully so. I think what this is about is nothing to do with the rule of law, Jesse. Obviously, this is about power. It is a demonstration of raw power. I think the Democrats know this has nothing to do with the law. They're sending a message. And the message is they will use any power that they have to interfere in the next presidential election. They will not willingly allow Donald Trump to run for president. They will not willingly lose the next election. They're going to use every means at their disposal. And Jesse, these are the same people who have sent SWAT teams to pro-life activists who use the FBI against parents at school board meetings. They will do anything, use any kind of power to try and hold on to their own privileges, their own positions. And we're seeing that tonight. This is just unprecedented in American history. And the only way out now is to win. What is the result of all this? What is the political fallout? I asked President Trump, my first question to him, I mean, my interview Monday was, does this help you or does this hurt you? Because when the Mar-a-Lago raid happened, it helped him. If you look at polls. Yeah, I think, thanks to Alvin Bragg, you just looked at our 2024 Republican presidential nominee. Yeah! I, think that's, I think that's what's going to happen. I think that 100 million Americans probably became ultra mega tonight. And I think that they're going to come out in force. I think that they're going to vote. I think that they're going to be active. The ground game for Donald Trump is going to be stronger than it's ever been before. So this is a horrible day for our country. But as for Donald Trump, he's the strongest man that we know. And I think he's going to fight this and he's going to come out victorious for this. But we still need to focus on the fact that this was such a political persecution. So you saw that in turn, Sean Hannity and Pete Hegseth. Um, they're both Fox News hosts. Then there was Joss Hawley. Um, he's a Trumpist Republican senator. And Tommy Loren um, was the final person speaking. She's another Fox News pundit. And in that last clip, um, you had a reference to Alvin Bragg. He's the Attorney General of New York. So he was the person sort of prosecuting or driving for this um, grand jury indictment to be made. I should say a grand jury, I don't think, I'm not, I don't think we have them in this country because I always see when, when I'm watching The Wire, they're always talking about a grand jury. In in America, because of a, something in the constitution, to charge someone, you need to get a, a jury to say, yes, we think this should go forward. Sort of, I suppose, similar to our decision that the Prime Constitution Service would make. Often there, it has to go to a, a jury of, of, of members of the public. Um, and as I say, they were all clips posted by Trump in the last 24 hours. So when you saw those um, mugshots sort of coming up on screen, that wasn't live on Fox News. That was sort of emblazoned on afterwards. Aaron, these guys all seem emboldened. I mean, I suppose this would be how they would react publicly, however they feel in private. But I mean, it seems like they, you know, they probably do have reason to 
think that this could help his re-election campaign. What do you think? It's a mixed bag, isn't it, Michael? Because, I mean, you could read it as cope, right? I mean, this is obviously, it's not, generally, it's not good for a political candidate to be arrested. I think some of the things they've said, you know, that may turn out to be true, but, you know, in and of itself, it's generally considered a bad thing for a political candidate to be arrested. Uh, and I think there, there is a part of it which is cope. He is being indicted for something which seems quite plausible. There was a great um, quote from Stormy Daniels in terms of when they first allegedly met one another. It was a golf tournament. He just turned 60. Um, he was wearing black silk pajamas. And she, she alleges that he was talking to her about the pornography industry. He said, oh, does it make good money? Are the films very profitable? And then they proceeded to have sex. And th this sounds like a remarkably plausible scenario with Donald J. Trump. So look, it's one thing to say it's an entire concoction, entire fabrication, which is what they said with regards to, for instance, you know, the investigations around connections to the Russian government and whatnot in 2016. It's something quite different to say, this is a technicality. You're going after somebody um, on a relatively trivial manner, a matter rather, in order to, in order to scotch their uh, chances of winning the next presidential election. That may all be true, but if he's broken the law, he's broken the law. So it's a little bit different to some of the more sort of conspiratorial stuff we saw around Russia and the Mueller report. Um, however, like you say, Michael, the average American probably thinks he's like, well, look, put it this way. The average Republican vote doesn't think he's any worse than uh, anybody else. I mean, obviously his vote really stood up in, in, um, in the 2020 elections. We know that, uh, particularly when you consider the role of COVID. His, his vote certainly didn't collapse. Uh, what happens with January 6th is a, little, is a little bit different. And I think that has probably some consequences on middle America and how they perceive him. But those people might not want him to be the president. But it's another thing entirely uh, to point to the fact he's being indicted. Now, there was Donald uh, Trump Jr. talking about this on television last night. His speaking style is fascinating, Michael. He's a strange kind of hybrid, a Jekyll and Hyde of his father and um, Tucker Carlson. And he said, look, Clinton, Obama, George Bush, George W. Bush, George, you know, George, the George Bush that took the United States into the Second Gulf War, hugely unpopular conflict that, you know, got them ensconced within the forever wars. None of these people were punished for everything, anything. And now you're saying my dad can't run for a, uh, for a second time because of allegedly giving money to a former porn star. This is ridiculous. And when you phrase it like that, okay, there's some weight to those statements. But as I said at the start, the rule of law is a thing. The rules apply. And if Trump's done something wrong, then of course he should face the consequences. For Republicans, this will get them very angry for the people that voted for him in 2020. But for middle America, I don't think it's that clear. So there's two ways of looking at this. One, this sort of gives him a, a, something to campaign on. He can say, look, I'm a victim. Screw the establishment. They're coming after me. The, the other option is to sort of say that does mean he's talking about something that people don't care that much about. And this was an analysis people had of the, the midterms where Trumpist candidates did you know, badly. They did badly and they did badly compared to non-Trumpist Republican candidates and the Democrats did better than we expected. And uh, one analysis, which I found quite plausible, is that in 2016. And even in 2020, he was talking about some issues that people cared about, you know, still ridiculous, still an appalling person. But, you know, especially in 2016, you know, he's talking about migration. People do care about migration, however much we we don't find that pleasant. Um, and he was talking about, you know, economic decline, et cetera, et cetera. In 2022, in the midterms, he's just talking about they stole the election from me, which uh, uh, there's, a thought, there's, there's a core of Trump supporters who believe that. But most people just like, well, one, I don't believe what he's saying. And two, this is completely irrelevant to me. I'm over this story. So it could be the case that if you have a, an election in 2024 where Joe Biden is talking about increases in wages, 
Um, if we're seeing a recovery by then, there is a tight labor market in America. So it might be the case um, that people do feel like their wages are holding up. And Donald Trump is talking about whether or not he paid hush money to someone called Stormy Daniels. And then these various indictments in various courts across the country, maybe that isn't going to be, it, it, it won't lose him the election, but it also might distract him from the issues that could win him um, the election, potentially. I want to go to some of the other things um, Trump is under investigation for, because the list is quite long. This is from The Guardian's summary. The Department of Justice is investigating Trump's attempted election subversion and his incitement of the January 6th attack on Congress. In a criminal investigation of Trump's retention of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, federal prosecutors are looking at whether Trump willfully retained national security information and obstructed justice. Trump is also under investigation in Georgia for alleged attempted election interference. The Fulton County prosecutor, Fannie Willis, requested a grand jury. It recommended indictments against whom is not known. Trump also faces a defamation trial arising from an allegation of rape made by the writer E. Jean Carroll, an allegation that Trump denies. Um, so there are legal cases against this guy left, right and centre. I mean, as we've spoken about, there should also have been legal cases left, right and centre against George W. Bush, who, you know, started in a legal war. But there we are. Um, let's look at polling because Trump remains popular with the public with the Republican base. This is a morning consult poll. Um, who do people want to be the 2024 Republican primary nominee or the, the Republican presidential nominee? Somebody, sorry. Um, Donald Trump is on 52%, Ron DeSantis on 26%. So an absolute majority um, want Donald Trump to be the Republican presidential candidate of people likely to vote in the Republican primaries. And then if Donald Trump does become the presidential candidate at the moment, him and Biden are pretty much neck and neck in the polls. So obviously things can change. But I mean, if they are neck and neck in the popular vote, that also, you know, potentially how the Electoral College goes, it might be the case that Biden needs to beat um, Trump significantly in the popular vote to actually become president and win the Electoral College. Aaron, I mean, you know, there's only so much we should talk about what would happen if Trump gets to be president, because it's going to be a, literally a topic that is is haunting us for the next 18 months. But um, briefly, I mean, how worried are you? Does it, it should? I mean, another thing which is people are talking about a lot on Twitter at the moment is that Democrats, again, seem to be quite keen on Trump getting nominated because they think he's more beatable than DeSantis. And I think mainly they're thinking that because of the experience of the midterms where DeSantis outperformed the Republicans in general because he wasn't constantly talking about stopping the steal, um, the coup or whatever Trump thinks it is. Um, and, and they think that in a presidential election, DeSantis would have a better chance than Trump of beating whoever the, the, the Democrats have put up. So the Democrats want Trump to go forward to be the candidate. Do you think they're right, those who do believe that? I think that's nonsense. I think that's absolute nonsense. If you look at US presidential elections and the popular vote, since the early 2000s, the Democrats do very well. So for instance, uh, you have the 2000 election, it's basically, it's a, effectively a tie. Um, you know, there's an argument that Al Gore sh should have won. Uh, obviously, Obama nails um, the Republican candidate, John McCain, and then Mitt Romney twice. Then of course, Hillary wins the popular vote in 2016. Biden wins the popular vote in 2020. So it, it what we're seeing is really a secular trend in terms of the popular vote in presidential elections, very different, very different from midterms and whatnot. Democrat Party candidates doing very, very well for a really long time, right? And actually, Trump in 2016 kind of beat all the the predictions. Everybody said, "Oh, now because of you know the demographic trends between the young, between women, between ethnic minorities, Latino vote, the black vote, basically the Democrats can't lose," right? 
this new sort of demographic coalition that Obama had brought together. You know, Obama, I think, in his first, the first time he beat McCain, I mean, I think he got more votes than anyone in the history of, you know, US politics. And then he still nails Romney four years later, despite being the incumbent. People are still very excited about him politically to be president. So I, I don't think, oh no, Ron DeSantis could win. I think that it's very hard for Republican candidates to beat Democrats in the popular vote. Going back to what you said a moment ago, which is, well, actually, Republicans, as Trump proved in 2016, can lose the popular vote, but still win. That's why people should be worried about that poll showing him and Biden neck and neck. If that happens in election, Biden will lose. Two quick points. In 2016, Trump was a very formidable candidate. And like you say, there's been flashes of that in the last few months. But he's a, he's a different kind of politician now. If you see, for instance, him absolutely nailing Jeb Bush in the 2016 Republican primaries, very early on around the Iraq war, Jeb Bush starts, starts talking about his dad, his daddy, how he's the nicest man in the world. He's the greatest guy in the world. He talks about his mum, uh, Barbara Bush, and then Trump says she should have run. One of those iconic moments. Everybody's clapping Jeb Bush because it's political insiders. But as we now know, the Republican base, and actually to a significant extent, the American electorate agreed with what Trump said in terms of the Iraq war and failures in US foreign policy after 9-11. If he can return to that kind of politician, <clears throat> I think he has an excellent chance of beating Biden. But we, we've not really seen much evidence of that really since 2018, 2019. Being in office really did grind that man down. He wins as an entertaining, captivating uh, figure, channeling popular discontent. This is hugely important and it's something he has lost on foreign policy, on the economy, on deindustrialization and the loss of manufacturing jobs. That's how he won in 2016. It wasn't the Donald Trump show. It wasn't The Apprentice meets, you know, uh, some uh, Netflix series about the White House. It was about being a politician, talking directly to the, the electorate in a way that most politicians didn't do. He, he has lost that to a certain extent. So I think he can win. But finally, Michael, I don't, I don't think he will win. I think it's improbable, but I think he can win. And I think people are saying that DeSantis is a better candidate. Listen to DeSantis for five minutes. You know, I discussed this with, um, uh, with Mehdi Hassan recently, of course. He's an MSNBC presenter, pundit in Washington, most senior Britain in US political commentary, really. And he thinks DeSantis is an awful candidate. So I don't buy that personally. But finally, if you look at what Biden's done on foreign policy, particularly, for instance, on China, uh, actually, he's gone considerably further to the right in some ways uh, than Trump did in office. There was a memorable moment when Mitt Romney was talking to uh, Barack Obama about Russia, and Romney was banging on about Russia ahead of the uh, ahead of the 2012 election. And Obama said, "Hey, Mitt, the 1980s wants its talking points back." And actually, Mitt Romney, as we now know, was probably talking some sense. So, you know, I, I, I think. We write off the fact that Biden has gone way further on certain issues that, that Trump was talking about for the first time, particularly around foreign policy. You know, the, the sanctions on China now are way beyond what Trump was doing to, to Huawei on 5G before 2020. So a bit more complex than that. Let's get on to our next story. Get ready for awful April. That's the message from the Daily Mail, who warned that millions of Britons face an onslaught of surging bills, including council tax, water and broadband. They say the combination of price hikes could leave families £700 a year worse off. 
In the article, they write, This average council tax bills will top £2,000 for the first time after an increase by £99 from April the 1st. Most broadband and mobile phone companies will be raising charges by about 14%. However, some customers of Virgin Media face punishing increases of 17.3% and in extreme cases, 25%. Water bills will see the biggest increase for about 20 years, with the annual cost of an average household hitting £448. A 7.5% rise means customers will pay on average, £31 more. The price rises come as millions are already in financial distress. According to the consumer group, which 2.5 million households missed or defaulted on must-pay domestic outgoings, loans or credit card payments in March? 2023 is going to be a very difficult year, as, as all of this uh, obviously alludes to. But it comes off the back of 2022. And Michael, I just want to go over some, some data about the last 12 months. Food prices presently running at 18%, year-on-year food inflation, 18%. Believe it or not, in March 2022, base rate of interest was 0.75%, now it's 4.75%. Average rents up 11%. The price of gas up 129%. Electricity up 66%. Um, and now we have the Center for Economic and Business Research saying that the average person on £12,570 a year will be £348 worse off. So if 2022 is identified as just a single year in isolation, it is appalling. It was the worst year on record for living standards since the 1950s. That was according to the, the Center for, for Economic and Business Research. And now we're entering year two, right? And by the way, it's very easy for people like Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, to say, well, don't worry, inflation will tick down and then interest rates will go down and then everything will be fine because the last 30 years, inflation was 2%, so it'll go back to 2%. It has to. That's all we've known. Well, the world in history doesn't quite work like that. It's a cognitive bias. It's a cognitive bias to say, well, things were like that before, so they'll be like that in the future. That's completely unscientific, completely unanalytical, and often incorrect. So we've had a very tough year, and I think we're having another very tough year UK uh, is looking at 0.3% recession. Inflation was back up again, surprisingly, in February. Interest rates we know will continue to go up. The question is, how long for? And here's the killer, Michael. House prices are going down. So we're looking at a very interesting moment now of higher inflation, high interest rates, declining house prices, which means declining asset wealth for most people, a constraining of credit because of problems in the banking system, particularly relating to what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank and problems that's creating more broadly for the, for the, for the financial system. It's going to, you know, banks want to be well capitalized. They're not going to be willing to lend as much as they might have. In isolation, 2022, a huge problem. There is a scenario here where 2023 is worse. Um, and I think right now, I don't think it's probable. But if inflation keeps on tapping up, and if the Bank of England keeps on having to put up interest rates, I think we're in a really, really bad situation. Chuck onto that the things you said around council tax. I mean, the average council tax bill now, £2,000. People are paying more than ever for council tax, and yet they get less and less when it comes to public services. That is the story of Britain in the 21st century. And right now, it doesn't feel like any political party is really offering concrete solutions. Well, let's focus on um, one political party and on council tax hikes because they are hitting just as the major parties prepare for local elections in May and Labour have made them central to their campaign. This was a tweet from Keir Starmer this week. A Labour government would freeze your council tax this year 
a tax cut for all, not just for the top 1%, money back in your pocket, because we are the party of lower taxes for working people. That's the difference we can make. That's the choice in May, a better Britain. Now, the most obvious way to read that tweet is that if you vote Labour in May, your council tax will be frozen. But of course, that's that's not true. Maybe a Labour government would freeze council tax this year, but we're not going to have a Labour government this year. People are voting for councillors, right? So it seems like a a slightly odd um, and an oddly constructed offer, let's say. Um, we can see it again here from Keir Starmer, a different tweet. A freezing council tax this year to put more money back in your pocket. Labour will build a better Britain. So a freeze in council tax this year. So that to me sounds like a, a promise. Again, Labour can't get you a freezing council tax this year. You know, it's not, not their fault they can't. It's because they're in opposition. It's just This is the pledge they're making. The Labour Party chair, Annalise Dodds, was picked up on the ambiguity in this message um, on Talk TV. Now, there's another video that Labour has put out today where Sir Keir Starmer says he will freeze council tax this year. But you can't do that, can you? Well, actually, what we said we'll do is take action right now because the cost of living crisis is biting right now. Just Inflation on that is at 10%. Point, just because voters, you know, you launched your local election campaign today and voters will be thinking about going to the polls. Just let's get this really straight. You can't promise people that you would freeze their council tax this year, can you? We would freeze that council tax over the year, and we've said how we'll pay for it. We'll pay for it by stopping that money that's currently left on the table by the Conservatives with their version of a windfall tax, which has huge numbers of holes in it, not the kind of windfall tax mm. other countries have put into place. We'd use that money to actually get that increase wiped off the table for people. Yeah. Because if you think about council tax, it's such a big fixed cost for many struggling families at the moment. Now, it's not a magic wand. Of course it isn't. But we want to use every mechanism to help people but with the cost of living. If people vote for Labour in these local elections, you cannot cut their council tax bills. Well, we are determined to put just pressure... Just answer that question for me, honestly, because it's really, really important. When people go into a voting booth, they know what they're voting for. If they vote Labour in the local elections, you cannot freeze their council tax. But the moral case for the government doing so gets stronger when Labour wins. Okay, so you're, so you're putting pressure on the government. You're not making a promise, you're putting pressure on the government. I don't know if it's pernickety to sort of find this a bit odd, Aaron, because, I mean, you know, the policy freezing council tax this year when everyone's facing a cost of living crisis and paying for it by, I think, the windfall tax. I mean, the, the point was also made in that interview that they keep paying for lots of things by the windfall tax. But in any case, not a terrible policy. I mean, it just does seem a bit weird, the wording, doesn't it? We would do this if we were in power right now, but it's not a pledge about what they would do when they can actually be in power. So they're not saying if we're elected in 2024, we'll freeze council tax. They're saying... If we were in government now, we would freeze council tax. And that's going to be our election campaign in local elections when people are already thinking about council. Like it's, it seems a confusing and convoluted, convoluted way to make what might be a reasonable point. It's fake news. It's fake news, Michael. Let's be real. If this was a Conservative Party making pledges that obviously they, obviously they can't keep, and they said, well, actually, it's not a pledge, it's not a promise. We're saying we would do this because if we say this and you vote for us, then it puts moral pressure on the government. Come on. If you're a 60-year-old grandma, uh, early retiree, there's lots of those in the economy at the moment, good for them. The government's moaning about it, but they can shut up. And, you know, you're not especially political. You might read a paper once every couple of weeks. You watch the news once in a while. You might be able to identify two or three politicians. That's most people. And you hear Labour saying, we'll freeze council tax. You think, well, there's an election in May. I can vote Labour. And Labour is saying they're going to freeze council tax. 
It's fake news. If this was the Conservative Party, Michael, liberal commentators, people on the BBC and in the Guardian would be going apeshit. They'd be going apeshit. Of course they don't do that because it's their own side. So, you know, this is integrity in politics. The exact same behavior, however, when it's the other side, it's lies, it's deception. It's fake news. I mean, it's blatant hypocrisy. To make it worse, Starmer was challenged about this, saying, well, when you are in government, potentially after 2024, would you do it then? And he said, well, you know, we, we don't know because we don't know the economic situation in a couple of years' time and we can't predict, and so I won't make promises ar around what Labour would deliver in government regarding council tax. So you can make a promise when you can't do anything about it, but you won't make a promise when you potentially could do something about it. I mean, my God, this is far more puerile and stupid than 99% of the stuff that comes out of the gob of Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, or most conservative cabinet ministers that appear on television. But you know, the liberal media, can't, they can't say that. BBC and The Guardian, most of the people in broadcast, let's be real, most people in broadcast are new Labour. They won't say that. They won't say, good, good by the way, good on uh, Talk TV for saying that. It was a very fair and honest challenge. Hold on, to be clear, for our audience, Labour saying this, but they won't be able to deliver it after May because you aren't in government. But somehow this gets a, a, a pass from people who really should know better. If this isn't acceptable from the Conservative Party, and it isn't, it certainly shouldn't be acceptable from Labour. I agree, basically. And it also, I just think it makes them look shifty when they don't need to look shifty. You know, because Annalise does there look, just look very uncomfortable. She's sort of like very, being very evasive, not answering the question in a straightforward way. And that's because you know, it's, it seems like they didn't need to put themselves in that situation unless, as you suggest, Aaron, they are trying to confuse people with their leaflets because they want someone to see that leaflet and think, oh, this is a council election. Labour are promising to freeze council tax, so obviously I'm going to vote Labour. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to see a, a non-sort of cynical explanation for it. And let's move on. The Tories took a battering on this week's question time. Take a look. I'm staggered, to be honest, at the different the gap between the audience and the panel and the, the notion that you think that you're succeeding on green energy or that people support human beings washing up on our shores or being, being um, deported to Rwanda. I'm absolutely staggered. The way that we talk about serious youth violence is, is not to talk about crime, it's to talk about the trauma that they've actually experienced in the last two years. You have cut funding you've cut budgets in school, we can't recruit teachers, we can't recruit teaching assistants, you've cut social workers, you have cut local services to the bone, and then you're worried about antisocial behaviour. There are no youth services. There are no youth services. such a massive gap between what you're saying and people's experience. Why can't people buy a house? Look at their wages. They're a teacher. They have been through university, paid over 30 grand, if not more, to go to university. The small, this ideological, want to control rent, use rent control, want to have houses, build more houses, because you can find the money to build HS2 and drill through. <laughs> Ideological choices. You've done nothing for green energy in 13 years. Nothing. Okay. Absolutely so nothing. So I think when we're talking about young people and supporting them, what has been put in place for young people? A tutoring programme. Okay, a let me let's program, put on this point twice for the minister. It's woeful. It is woeful. You heard the lady. The, the original question was about knife crime. <laughs> 
there's a substance abuse, but you've heard two people here well, well, and from the audience yep. also talking about, well, in, in the time the, you give me, Fiona, what action will you take? And they're suggesting not cutting services might be part of the action you could take. Okay, in terms of knife crime and antisocial behaviour, because they're part of the same spectrum, it's all crime, but serious crime has come down quite a lot. 50 percent, 50%, 50% since 2010, except for fraud. And the gentleman <laughs> is absolutely right. Why would you leave right. out fraud? I don't well, because that. because what what's, what's if you put fraud in, what's, what's happened? What's happened? What happens is the crim the crim the criminals have become invisible. Very strange. Enough. What's happened is the criminals have become invisible. So if, if crime is done by invisible people, we don't record it. I mean, in a way, I don't. I don't think it is as ridiculous as it, as it initially sounds to sort of potentially separate um, crimes involving sort of online fraud because you know the, the experience of being defrauded online is very different to the experience of being subject to physical crime, right? In part because you know your credit card company will probably repay you for it anyway, um, so I, I can see why they have taken that out of the the crime statistics. And also, as we talked about on a previous show, like crime is falling. The question then is what re reported crime to the police is up, but sort of crime, according to the surveys from the Office of National Statistics, is, is down. The question then becomes why are the Tories running a campaign fearmongering about crime if it's down? You know, because crime is down, but actually the police are also performing worse when it comes to solving them. I suppose the Tory on the panel didn't want to mention that. Great intervention from that lady, though. Although I, I disagree with her on HS2, but I mean, very, very impassioned. Um, let's go to one more clip because it wasn't an easy ride for the for the Tory on the panel. Conservatives have been in power now for nearly 13 years, and they still haven't got anything. They're not building suitable places for. <laughs> The immigrants that come over that want to stay here, you know, where everything's being processed, and putting them up in um, barracks, was it? That's, yes, that's I think that's ridiculous. We need we need investment, and I don't understand why it's taking Conservatives so long. And their ridiculous idea of flying everybody to Awada, I think that's stupid. Um, they need something that's more humanitarian. They need something that's more thought out. Um, because there's a lot of people, a lot of potential that's coming over that can help England and the United Kingdom. And, it, and at the moment, we're wasting it because we're not letting them work. Um, we're putting them up in hotels. We should have, we should have um, things this, this better. And we, we've got a housing crisis as well. Conservatives should be on this. They shouldn't be 13 years in and still scratching their heads. That was the People's Republic of Bristol, Aaron. It's a sort of a swing city between Labour and the Greens. So you can see why the audience mm. might have been a little bit more progressive than your average episode of Question Time. Um, do you think the Tories feel under pressure when they're hearing sort of interventions like that? Or do they just think these are people who'd never vote for us anyway? This is just liberal lefties. Uh, screw them, essentially. What do you mean by pressure, Michael? Because, I mean, you know, opinion polls put them up between 20 and 25%. So I imagine under a great deal of pressure. I mean, I don't think they, they, they think they're going to be taking you know, seats in Bristol anytime soon. But I, I think they would probably say, well, actually, that's not entirely uh, typical of the country more broadly. So what, what do you mean by pressure? I mean, do they care? I mean, because I watch that and I, I think you should do it anyway. I'm not saying, oh, there's no point in having to go at Tories on question time because they're not going to care. I think it's, it's really important to get the message out there. I think it's really important for, I think, actually sort of the... The, the well-being of everyone watching that. I think lots of people feel like real relief when they see someone speaking truth to power like that. I suppose I'm just, you know, putting myself in the shoes of the Tory who's being attacked there. Is he thinking like, control yourself. You know, our, 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 our media guys told us, do not respond to this kind of stuff. 
we're appealing to people who don't like migrants. We're appealing to people who already own homes. So if you get attacked on rent, if you get attacked on migration, just ignore it. Deflect. Don't let it get you down. I think that's right. And I, I think that's entirely right. You look at, for instance, some of the policies they've announced with regards to Rwanda was a, le a less popular policy. And I think even the people that support it don't think it'll ever happen. So I think that's a separate one. And I think they probably think it's partly about creating a media spectacle. But the, the Tories talk about boats, small boats. They talk about undocumented migration, um, partly because it's one of the very few things they still can capture at least a plurality of the public on, if not a majority. Uh, that's not to say that, that you know the, the the public overwhelmingly agrees with everything they're saying on the matter, but it's perceived as quote unquote a crisis that they have a surer footing on than the Labour Party. That's the reason why they talk about it. And look, we were we were in a situation in this country for many years where immigration was the first or the second leading issue in terms of political saliency for the electorate more broadly. So you know they talk about it for a reason. If somebody pushes back against immigration politics or policy coming from the, the Tory party in Bristol. I think, yes, of course they will, they will ignore it. The renting one is a bit different because of course uh, the renting situation is very, very bad in this country, but it primarily affects people under, let's say 45. Um, I think now if you're in your late thirties to early forties, you're three times more likely to rent now than you were about 20 years ago, really astonishing statistic. And so that question of home ownership, a little bit different because if there is, a problem in terms of reproducing home ownership in this country. I think home ownership peaks in the early 2000s at around 71%. Today, it's around 63, 64%. Clearly, if, if that trend continues, if it continues to go down, which will be hard, but it's plausible, then, then I think the Conservatives have, have a real problem in terms of guaranteeing their political base in, in the coming decades. Even if that figure stands still, I think they have major problems. Important to say, when they did win in 2015, it came off the back of um, help to buy. One or two years of help to buy actually managed to just push home, home ownership up a little bit. Very stupid policy for a number of reasons. We don't have the, the, the time to go into that. But I would say home ownership somewhat different because they can't just ignore that forever. The reproduction of homeowners in this country is the reproduction of the Tory vote to a significant extent. In the 1920s, you have this, this important article written by Noel Skelton about Britain being a, a, a or conservative Britain being a property owning democracy. Well, I don't think we were ever particularly democratic because of an elected head of state, an elected uh, second chamber, and a few other things too. But increasingly, we're certainly not property owning, particularly for people under 45. So I think that's somewhat different. They can't avoid that forever. And hey, who knows? Even maybe by 2024, I think this crisis around renting uh, and people failing to get on the property ladder, that will start to present real problems to them. And it's a, good, it's a great question, I think. They're strategists, people like, uh, you know, Isaac Levito, Linton Crosby, the infamous Lizard of Oz. Are they going to have to talk about housing politics? I think they will. On immigration, I think it's somewhat different. The next story about someone very close to my heart. One of the things I love most about my colleague Aaron Bastani is his iconoclasm. He's not afraid to say things which uh, sometimes seem a bit off the wall. And he doesn't mind upsetting dogmas, be they from the right, the centre or the left. And sometimes, unsurprisingly, this gets him into trouble on Twitter. This was the latest example. This is Aaron tweeting a video of King Charles. It's a genuine indictment of the country's political class that Prince Charles, at one point strongly disliked by the British public, is an infinitely better representative for this country than any member of the government. And followed up, nice voice, Drake's ties, radical green politics in an understated way, a quiet internationalism while not bleating about how everyone you disagree with is a racist, a few things a successful left can take from Mr. Charles Windsor. 
Um, now, we haven't actually shown the ratios on there, but if we did, um, you would be able to see that that got lots and lots of quote tweets and not as many retweets. Now, if you get lots of quote tweets and not as many retweets, that means there are lots of people getting angry at you um, and, and less people saying, like, yes, Aaron, we love what you've said. Why were people getting so angry at you? And what were you? F what's your thought behind these tweets? Respond to your critics, first, Aaron. First of all, Michael, if Twitter was a barometer of anything, this country would have voted to remain in the European <laughs> Union 85% and 15% in 2016. <laughs> and we would, have had a, a, we would have had an insurrection to stop Brexit in 2019 if Twitter was anything to go by. That's the first point. Secondly, that first tweet, there are two separate points being made. The first tweet, I, I actually, I think that's quite obvious. I think it's quite common sense. I think it's an, I'm saying it's an indictment on the political class that this unelected guy is putting a better face forward for the country than Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Theresa May, Kistama. Do you think people get excited about, I'm not saying they get excited about Prince Charles. Okay, Charles is here, interesting, a bit different. Do you, do you think it's a sort of political moment when any of those figures go to a foreign country? Is it like JFK in Berlin, or Thatcher, or Blair, or Reagan? I, I don't, I, I'm sorry, I don't think it is. I mean, I'm not suggesting all those people are lovely figures. I don't like Thatcher, I don't like Reagan, I don't like Blair. But clearly they had a really powerful political brand. Now, when we have the British Prime Minister go to these places, let's be real, nobody gives a toss. And so it's an indictment on the political class and really how Magnolia and, and non-entity-ish non they are, that actually this guy who's not been elected by anybody has a, an arguably stronger political brand. So that was my point. It was an indictment on the political class. And that's a major problem, Michael, for Republicans and Democrats in this country, not in the US sense. It's a major problem for Republicans and Democrats in this country that an unelected head of state has a more powerful and potent and interesting political brand than, than any major politician in the government. Sorry, it just is. And let's see, the, uh, you know, and right now this is just speculation, it's just my opinion. Look at the opinion polls in terms of favorability on Charles and Germany compared to Sunak or Starmer or, or, or Johnson or May. First point. And it, like I say, that is an indictment on the political class. If people want to disagree on Twitter, they're welcome to, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> Two different things, popularity and being correct, Michael. I found that out the hard way. Now, the second tweet, there's a bit of banter there. There's a bit of banter there, isn't there? There's a bit of banter there, isn't there? So what, I say, Drake's ties? Well, look, Drake's ties are 100, I don't know. I don't know, just, just the record. Should we get it up again? Let's, get it, let's get it up again. Nice voice, Drake's ties, radical green politics in an understated way, acquired internationalism, while not bleating about how everyone you disagree with is a racist. A few things a successful left can take from Mr. Charles mm. Windsor. This is, this is the one that really yes. got people annoyed. Good. I'm glad they're annoyed. First of all, I said Mr. Charles Windsor, so I'm referring to him as a private citizen because I'm a Republican. He shouldn't be the monarch. Secondly, I don't own a Drake's tie. Just to make you know, make this clear. What I'm is a Drake's tie, actually? Because that was that was Drake's my one. A very nice tie maker in in, uh, right. in London, Michael. But anyway, park that. It's just a bit of tongue in cheek, isn't it? Nice voice. Now, this is actually besides the banter, and this was a bit bit more of a banter tweet than the first one. The first tweet, I mean, in its entirety, Michael, it is an indictment. And I think I'm entirely correct. I don't care what Twitter says. The second tweet, a bit tongue-in-cheek, a bit of a joke. But I would say this, Michael, if you want to build a coalition to push back on climate change that wins, it can't just be people that look like you and me, talk like you and me, on the radical left, young people doing direct action. It can't just be that. It can't. You, it might be nice to hang around and talk to people that look and sound like yourself. I love it, Michael. I love hanging out with you. We, we have the same interests. But if you're trying to build a social movement with, movement with a critical mass to change things, particularly on something like climate change, we're going to need more, you know, bourgeois boomers with nice voices wearing, you know, double-breasted blazers saying that uh, we can't have two degrees warming. 
And if we do, then that's the end of the road for society as we know it. We're going to have to have those people in any successful movement, right? A successful movement on climate has people that look like that. It does. It just does. And it would have to be a cross-class coalition. It just would. And, and I know that, again, it's not particularly popular. And by the way, it's not especially easy. And it's, just, it's incredibly rare, but it is important. Um, and, and so I think that's something I would actually, that was really a bit of a joke tweet, but there's a kernel of seriousness there, which is if people are serious about the climate crisis, serious about change, well, yeah, there's people that you wouldn't normally associate with who are necessary to bring inside that coalition. Now, you bring them inside because of shared values and shared objectives. You don't water down the objectives, but my God, Michael, for every activist, for every left-wing journalist, we're going to need some bourgeois boomer with a rather melodious voice as well. That's what a successful movement on climate change will look like. I have a lot of solidarity here. And I've also um, you know, got into trouble with opinions about royals. I remember when uh, I said on this show, after the Queen died, I went to, to Buckingham Palace out of interest. I said I left a little bit less Republican than I arrived. It felt like I was part of a, a fairly meaningful collective experience. Obviously, I didn't really care about the Queen, but I was like, oh, it's nice for everyone to come together and you know, do something that's the same. You know, I like it when everyone does the same thing. And if it's a bit meaningless and doesn't seem to be particularly harmful, all the better for it. The Q, the Q made me more of a royalist. I'm still not a royalist, but the Q made me more of a royalist than I was before. I remember saying that on the show. Again, I welcome all your pushback in the comments. Michael, I'm not buying into state-sanctioned choreography, okay? That's not what I'm arguing for here. I'm saying there are certain visual and optical cues which a successful left would adopt. Now, people can disagree. I love wearing an Avara branded t-shirt and going like a little rat bag onto TV and winding up the Blairites because nothing gets them more upset, by the way, than wearing a t-shirt. It's why I do it so often, right? I love winding up the, the labor centrist melts. However, if you're talking seriously about building wider movements, that's what you need. So the, the points I'm making there, Michael, in terms of the optics of what a successful left looks like and the kind of people it would include a little bit different from the, uh, the perfunctory hagiography, which you decided to gleefully subordinate yourself to. Uh, a bit different, I think, I in my defense. I like twee collective experiences and you like nice um, suits and ties. I think we could, we, we've all got our weaknesses. Final story. Since buying Twitter for $44 billion, Elon Musk has done nothing but make it worse. Sacking software engineers means the app breaks more often. Sacking moderators means there's more spam. And perhaps most annoyingly, services which used to be free um, keep being put behind paywalls. So the same service, but now you have to pay. Um, perhaps though, for Musk at least, it's all been worth it. That's because finally, the richest man in the world is also the most followed man on Twitter. Musk has replaced Barack Obama as the most followed account. He has 133 million followers, up from 100 million last year. The victory for Musk comes as tech ownership has risen up the political agenda in the United States. That's mainly been focused on the Chinese-owned company TikTok. Their CEO was subjected to a congressional grilling last week. And this was one key exchange between lawmakers and TikTok's boss. Would TikTok be prepared to divest from ByteDance and uh, Chinese Communist Party ties if the Department of Treasury instructed you all to do so? Uh, Congressman, I said in my opening statement, I think we are need to address the problem of privacy. I agree with you. I don't think ownership is the issue here. With a lot of respect, American social companies don't have a good track record with data privacy and user security. I mean, look at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, just one example. So 
So uh, I, I do think that you know it is not about the ownership. It is a lot about making sure we have project taxes, making sure that we're protecting and firewalling U.S. user data from unwanted foreign access, giving third parties to come in to have a look at this and making sure that everybody is comfortable. So we've got two stories of tech ownership here, Aaron. We've got Elon Musk buying Twitter, basically running it down, but becoming the most followed person on the platform, which, I mean, he does seem to be, he seems to be pretty obsessed with being like a poster. So I think he probably does care about this kind of thing. We've also read lots of reports of, you know, him sort of talking to engineers. Why are more people not seeing my tweets? Um, so I think it's probably not a coincidence that he bought it and now he's the most followed. And then you've got um, in, in Congress this hearing and, I mean, lots of talk about America being about to ban TikTok um, because they're concerned about its Chinese ownership and what that could mean for American security. In a way, you're sort of counterposing US and Chinese capitalism at the moment. You've got um, this tech CEO titan, formerly the world's richest person, maybe still is. He's lost a lot of money in the last, well, he's lost a lot of worth. It wasn't money, it was overvalued stock in Tesla. Um, he's lost a lot of worth in the last 12 months. On the one hand, he pays 44 billion for a platform so he can have the most followers. On the other hand, you have TikTok and they have a CEO who's quite affable, relatable, really smart social content, really good PR around him in order to basically ensure that the company can stay in the US market. So it's like with, with Musk, it's a pure vanity project, idiocy. The guy's a buffoon on this stuff. And then you have the, you know, the TikTok CEO doing everything he can to stop, I think, quite an unfair blocking of, of TikTok. And I, I think it is unfair to block TikTok. I mean, it's used by between 100 and 150 million Americans. Many, many people are using it. Uh, I think I've seen statistics by the average user spending more than an hour on there. Put it this way. It's a very, very mainstream social platform, which is going to be stripped from tens of millions uh, of Americans. Now, the American government says, well, that's because of privacy concerns. Well, when the Chinese said that with regards to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, and all the various American tech companies, well, apparently that was awful. So uh, there's got to be hypocrisy somewhere, right? There's got to be hypocrisy somewhere. Can only American companies do that, but not Chinese companies? Because I agree, it's bad, by the way. I think the idea that, I think tech surveillance, just in and of itself, forget it, it's a, a, a part of a broader geopolitical strategy on the part of a nation state, I think tech surveillance is clearly bad, but there's clearly also a great deal of hypocrisy here. And it does make you wonder, looking at how Twitter's being run, looking at how TikTok's being run, the difference in, in seriousness fundamentally between Musk and between TikTok management. I don't think Elon Musk is the avatar of US management. I hope not, because the country, frankly, won't last very long if he is. But it says something quite deep, meaningful, and profound about contemporary capitalism. You have, for instance, Samsung and South Korea looking to spend more than $200 billion in microprocessing manufacturing over the next 20 years. You've got Taiwan producing 90% of the world's leading microprocessor technology. You have China now hell-bent. Xi Jinping has recently allocated around $140 billion to ramp up its domestic microprocessor industry. Meanwhile, the US is responsible for around 12% of microprocessor. These are chips, about 12% of global supply. And it's kind of national conversation in regards to business has been captured by people like Elon Musk, who are frankly um, hyperbolic charlatans. So I think it does say something quite interesting about US capitalism and, and, and where it appears to be going. And US public life too, right? I mean, I wouldn't write it off. I think some of the fundamentals are quite strong when it comes to the United States. But compare and contrast TikTok and Twitter, I think the Chinese come out of it looking quite good.
I mean, I agree with you. I, I agree with you on sort of who, who looks like the more effective society when it comes to these social apps. I mean, obviously, maybe you shouldn't extrapolate too much from 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 social media apps. But I, I actually, in, in terms of the TikTok hearings, like a lot of people have been talking about like this, like it's hysteria or xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually have some sympathy with it. And I don't mean that from a moral perspective, because I mean, I, in, in the great power competition that's currently existing between the United States and China, I have literally no stakes. Like, I think Chinese development is great. I want China to continue getting richer. I, I don't want America to be successful in making them poorer. But like, the, these are two countries which, like it or not, seem to be in some great power conflict now. And it does seem to me a bit of a strategic error if you let your adversary in a great power conflict have the most important widespread social media app, which is speaking to an hour a day to 150 million of your population. So a third of your population and loads of those kids. And, and you know, it's I don't think the Chinese are necessarily nefariously trying to steal everyone's data. And they're talking about all sorts of silly things in the congressional hearing about, you know, are they taking sort of iris data and, you know, data from people's eyes. It, it sounded a bit ill-informed, but the Americans are in a difficult position now because I think, you know, the algorithms that sort of determine what you see on TikTok and what you don't aren't particularly transparent. You know, they haven't published them. And it, I think it is the case that within TikTok, there are people, you know, the American engineers don't always know what's what's going on. You know, I, I think the code is in China. By the way, they don't even use TikTok in China, right? They have a different app, which is way more controlled than TikTok because the Chinese government mm -hmm. don't think it's particularly helpful for, for or healthy for a generation of kids to be spending hours a day looking at stupid videos, right? I think- And there's a limit. Made, there's, there's a time limit as well. A, there's a time limit. And I think they've made theirs a little bit more educational. So I can, I can see why it's a bit of a flop um, for a civilization in, in a great power conflict to make the most successful means of speaking to your younger generation controlled by your adversary. And I, I think something that's very interesting in this conflict is that sort of the Americans were raising the stakes by saying, we might force TikTok to be sold to an American company, right? And China came back and sort of raised the stakes and said, well, TikTok can't be sold, you know, either it's Chinese run or it gets switched off. And, and so what that is saying to the Americans is either you have to take a real political cost and piss off 150 million of your citizens who use TikTok, or you have to live with the fact that the most successful social media app in your country is controlled by your strategic adversary. So it, do, it does seem to me like they kind of have been a little bit snookered um, when it comes to this. Yeah, I think they've been snookered, but I think the best option for the, the US would be to switch it off. I think the short-term hit would be extraordinary, by the way. I mean, it would be horrific. And it's a shame because it's obviously there's a great deal of value that's used by some people. I follow some great people on TikTok. Um, and I learn a great deal from them. But it, it makes you think, Michael, I go back to 5G. You know, Huawei was building 5G in this country. And you, you sort of now, because of course, we've seen the return of great power politics, particularly with Russia, but this has been boiling for a long time with, with China and the US. You take a step back and, and you think, how... We were allowing, like you said, strategic adversary. I have absolutely no problem with China. I think a lot of this stuff is stupid and the left should certainly not view the world through rail politique and, and sort of geopolitical point scoring that various powers try and play off one another. But, but, but imagine you're David Cameron, right? Imagine you're the conservatives, you have a certain worldview, and then you allow China to build your 5G network. It's so strange. And the reason why they allowed that to happen, Michael, is because we come from this 40-year ideological desert of, of, of neoliberalism, where they just thought, no, no, the Chinese will be able to, you know, they'll make stuff and we'll serve coffees and make TV shows and have Dragon's Den. And actually, that means we're more innovative. Meanwhile, the Chinese are developing a 5G network. And I think the Americans, particularly on 5G, learned lots of lessons. 
because they don't, they've got no national champion when it comes to 5G, which is a hugely important technology. There was three major companies, the three big players, two are European, one is Chinese, um, Nokia, Ericsson, and Huawei. And I think that for the US was a major moment where they say, wow, we could be seeding great power status far more quickly than we realize. And I think that's why they've then gone so hard on microprocessors, why you have the Chips and Science Act by Biden, they're spending $50 billion domestically, why you have the embargoes on Chinese microprocessors, and why they're making it difficult for, for China to develop its own chips in the next 5, 10, 15 years. But you do look back at, say, 10 years ago, ago you know, that, that famous David Cameron selfie uh, with Xi at Manchester City, you think, that was weird. You know, for a moment, the West forgot about rail politique. China didn't. That now leaves them in a situation where they're snookered. Let's wrap up by saying you can follow us on TikTok. Um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I still don't understand TikTok. I need to. I've, st I've still just said sort of like there's only so many social media apps I can understand myself and I've sort of settled with like Twitter and Instagram. But I, I, do, do we tell people that it's at Navarra Media on TikTok? Is that how it works? It's at Navarra yeah. Media. Yeah. God, I sound so old. I'm going to work this. I can't have this you happen are. again. I'm going to be, I'm going to, you I are. am. Yeah, compared, yeah, yeah, I am old. I'm old. I'm how, how, how old are you, Michael? I'm an old and I love the late queen. How old are you? Um, I am 33. You're a zaddy. A what? A zaddy. That's what the kids would call you, Michael. You're a zaddy. I, but I'm not Generation Z. I'm no, I'm not a boomer. No, I'm, a millen I'm a millennial, aren't I? I'm a millennial. It's been you a long day. The, you haven't got the, Millennials are old now. You haven't got the slightest idea what I'm talking about. Michael, <laughs> go look it up. You're a zaddy. I'm a, I'm a zaddy. All right. I'll live with that. I'll look that up. Um, thank you for joining me tonight, Aaron. Um, and thank you for everyone watching. Um, you're still on the screen, Aaron, so you should say something. Thank you. Well, it's been wonderful to, 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 to have this conversation tonight. I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to defend myself with regards to Drake's ties. Yeah. And I took some of the heat off you as well, didn't I? By, by putting my own um, dirty laundry on the table. Um, thank you everyone for watching this evening come back on Monday night for another live stream from 6pm and now you've been watching Navara Media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media go to navaramedia.com support <laughs>